Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. And welcome again to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Well, I am very excited to have as my guest today, David Gran. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author and award-winning staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. And he's here to talk about the book that was a finalist for the National Book Award and a winner of the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best True Crime Book, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. Thank you so much for coming on today. No, thank you for having me on the show. So when did you first hear about this story, and at what point did you decide to tackle it as the subject of a book? So I first heard about it, now it's been a while ago, I I think it was about 2011, um, I was speaking uh, to um, uh, somebody uh, who was very familiar with FBI history, and he had mentioned uh, that there had been an early case back in the early 20th century involving the Osage, and I really couldn't find much written about it. And so I, in 2011, I really didn't have any plans at that point of writing a book or necessarily even doing a story, but I was curious enough to, to make a trip uh, out to Oklahoma, and I went, the first thing I did when I got there was I went to visit the Osage Nation Museum. And when I was there, I had seen this um, great panoramic photograph on the wall, which was taken in 1924. It showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers, and it looked pretty innocent. But I noticed that a portion of that photograph had been cut out. And I asked the then museum director, Catherine Redcorn, uh, who I was meeting them for the first time. She's since become a good friend of mine. And I said, oh, you know, what had happened to that? You know, why is part of the photograph missing? Uh, and she had said it had contained a figure so frightening she had decided to remove it. And then she pointed to the missing panel and she said the devil was standing right there. 
And it's very rare that kind of books have a kind of origin story, or at least a kind of clear origin story. Uh, but that really was it. Um, I was drawn to figuring out who that missing figure was, um, and it led me to what I would come to realize was one of the most sinister crimes in American history and one of the worst racial injustices in American history as well. Yes, without question. If you don't mind, paint a picture for us of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma in the 1920s. What was it like for the Osage living there at the time? Um, the Osage, like so many American Indian nations, had been driven off much of their ancestral lands. Uh, they had once, um, you know, uh, controlled much of the central part of the country, an area that stretched all the way from Missouri and Kansas to the edge of the Rockies. Um, but as they were driven off more than 100 million acres of their ancestral land beginning uh, in the 1800s, and eventually um, they had uh, found a new homeland in what was originally Indian territory and then became the state of Oklahoma. And it was a large area. It was about the size of Delaware, but it was it was considered worthless by many whites because it was rocky and infertile. Um, but then oil was discovered under their land. So in the early 20th century, the Osage had become extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, they were considered the wealthiest people per capita in the world. There was only about 2,000 or so of them on the tribal roll, and each of them had a share in this kind of collective mineral trust in which they would receive money for royalties and for oil leases, leases which could sell for as much as, you know, each lease could sell for as much as a million to two million dollars. And so in the year 1923, in that year alone, those 2,000 or so Osage uh, received what would be uh, the equivalent today of more than $400 million. And um, they lived in terracotta mansions. They had uh, many servants, some of whom were white. Um, it was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And their wealth belied long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans that went all the way back to the first brutal contact. What was the perception of the Osage by local white settlers? Were they integrated in any way uh, when they went to town? Was there communication, uh, relationships, mistrust? Uh, I, probably a, a combination of all those uh, factors. Once oil was discovered, these communities were really overwhelmed by white settlers. So oil might be discovered, and within the span, you know, just a few days, you know, an area that might have had no people or two people suddenly had 10,000 people, many of them living in, in tents and quick kind of ramshackle homes, uh, so many of these oil workers. So their communities were really kind of overwhelmed. Um, but there was uh, certainly some integration. There was intermarriage. But the Osage wealth provoked a great deal of uh, prejudice, not just locally among settlers, but also across the country. And members of the U.S. Congress would hold hearings for hours uh, debating what are we going to do about these Osage with all their money. And, of course, this was the period of the Great Gatsby when whites were making fortunes and losing them, but the Osage were somehow scapegoated for their wealth um, and went so far that the U.S. Congress decided to uh, pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians to manage their fortunes. And this system, you know, was not 
you know, abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed un- incompetent and you were given one of these guardians and, and they could suddenly tell you, you know, whether you could buy this toothpaste or buy that car. Um, and not only was the system racist, it also ushered in one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises as many of the guardians began to s- swindle tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, and you write in in your book how coveted these guardianships were. People would vie for these, and they would be doled out in a sort of patronage system. Yes, it was a patronage system, and there were kickbacks, and judges would dole them out for votes, and and um, and then there was great kickbacks associated with them. So, for example, you know, if you were a guardian, you would have uh, the Osage person whose fortune you managed saying, you know, oh, go get this car at this store. And then the owner of that store, who was maybe one of your buddies or, or, or one of your uh, fellow uh, conspirators, would give you a kickback for, for buying that car. So it was, it was enormously corrupt and problematic. And, um, and going back to your question, you know, the, the money – you know, and how were those treated? They were treated with, um, you know, a mixture of envy and, and paternalism and, and racism and this whole kind of toxic brew uh, mixed together. So through the 1920s especially, there was an abnormally large number of suspicious deaths, unsolved murders of Osage people. When did law enforcement finally get clued in that there was a pattern yeah, so um, there had been a kind of um, a certain number of killings uh, taking place, um, you know, even before 1920, and, and 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 at that point they weren't necessarily seen as part of a pattern yet or a systemic campaign. Um, and then, really, in 1921, that began to change, and I write a lot uh, in the book about one family in particular, the family of Molly Burkhart. And and, and Molly uh, was, was really a remarkable woman. She had been born in a, a wigwam and in, the, in the 1880s, uh, speaking Osage, practicing Osage traditions. Uh, she was then forcibly uprooted uh, by the federal government from her home and forced to uh, go to a, a, a missionary Catholic uh, boarding school where she was no longer allowed to speak Osage. She could no longer wear her traditional blanket. And um, and within a few decades, uh, because of the oil money, she was living in a in a large house. She had married a white settler from Texas named Ernest Burkhart, um, and she was somebody who who like many Osage at that time, she really straddled not only two centuries but two civilizations. And then one day in the spring of 1921, her older sister Anna had been over at the house. Uh, Molly liked to entertain. She had had a party. Uh, Anna left the house that evening and disappeared. And about a week later, she was found in a ravine, shot in the back of the head. And then within um, really just a span of a couple couple months, uh, Molly's mother had begun to grow kind of mysteriously sick. And within two months, she had died, and evidence would indicate that she had been poisoned. So within the span of two months, Molly had lost her older sister, and she lost her mother. And then her her younger sister, Rita, who was so terrified by these killings, she had, she had lived down in the country with her husband and a 
uh, a white maid who was about 18 years old with two little children. Uh, they had decided to move closer to town, closer to Molly, where they thought it would be safer. And one night, uh, Molly heard a loud explosion. It was about 3 in the morning, and she got up, and she went to her window, and she looked out in the direction of her younger sister's house, and all she saw was this great orange ball rising into the sky, and somebody had planted a bomb under her younger sister's house and had blown it up, killing her younger sister, her sister's husband, and the 18-year-old maid as well. And within that family and, and with the kind of inescapable nature of the explosion, um, at that point, there really could be no doubt that the Osage were being targeted uh, for their wealth. And in the span of about 1921 to 1923, in that span alone, um, you know, there were at least the official death toll had climbed to about 27 Osage who were being systematically targeted uh, for their oil money. And um, at one point, somebody who was close to the Osage had gone to Washington, D.C., hoping to uh, report uh, the killings to federal authorities. And he had checked into a boarding house, and he carried with him a Bible and a pistol, and he received a telegram from an associate in Oklahoma that said, be careful. And he left the boarding house that evening, and he was abducted, and he was found in a culvert the next day. He had been stabbed more than 20 times and beaten to death. And the Washington Post at that point, or a little bit afterwards, carried a headline that declared what the Osage had long already known. It said, conspiracy to kill rich Indians. There were kind of two phases of investigations. Uh, the first one was the incompetent phase, <laughs> the confusing phase, where various parties were hiring private detectives, and it was almost an atmosphere, you write, of espionage, double agents. <laughs> it was all murky and slightly nefarious. And then it becomes more serious with the entrance of Tom White and the FBI. But can you talk about the early days of investigations into the murders? What was going on? Sure. So uh, initially, um, you know, many of the Osage, you know, very valiantly, um, and, and Molly, very bravely, really crusaded for justice, even though she was putting a bullseye on her back. Um, but because she was Osage and because she was a woman, um, her pleas to authorities, to the law enforcement authorities who were all white, uh, were ignored or uh, covered up. And, and at that time, and it's one of the things that really, you know, you learn a lot when you do research, I um, did not realize just how um, problematic law enforcement still was uh, in the United States at that time period. Uh, there was very poor training, uh, especially in, in kind of more rural areas, um, and there was a great deal of corruption. It was very easy for the powerful to basically just pay off prosecutors and sheriffs to, uh, you know, to get away with, in this case, uh, really heinous murders and atrocities. Um, and so the Osage, uh, and including Molly, um, you know, they would hire private detectives. And one of the reasons private detectives were such a 
key part of the landscape at that time and why they kind of dominated fiction in that period was because of problems with public law enforcement, private detectives often were used to fill the void, but they often suffered from many of the same problems where poor training, many of the private eyes might have criminal backgrounds, uh, and they too might be available to the highest bidder. And in the case of these murders, they often seem to be covering up the evidence, uh, you know, rather than unearthing it. And so in, in, in 1923, after that death toll, the official death toll climbed to about 27, um, the Osage Nation's government issued a, a resolution pleading for federal authorities to step in. And it was then that the case was taken up by a rather obscure branch of the Justice Department. It was then known as the Bureau of Investigation. Of course, we know it today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI. What was J. Edgar Hoover's motivation in solving these crimes? Yeah, yeah so the, the, the Bureau um, was a really uh, a pretty ragtag operation at that time. Uh, it had only, uh, you know, a smattering of field offices across the country. It had a real hodgepodge, uh, you know, very f- few jurisdictions uh, over crimes. But one of the jurisdictions they had was over um, the lands of American Indian nations. And so this case fell to the FBI. Um, but the Bureau suffered from many of the same problems that plagued law enforcement uh, at that time, poor training, corruption. Uh, the Bureau had just come out of being implicated in the teapot oil uh, conspiracy. So when Hoover got the case, uh, he was uh, very new uh, to the Bureau. He was only 29. Uh, he had just been uh, appointed. Um, and so far, uh, the Bureau had worked on the case for two years, and the results have been completely disastrous. You know, they had failed to make any arrests. They had gotten an outlaw out of jail, a guy named Blackie Thompson, who they hoped to uh, used as an informant, and instead he robbed the bank and killed the police officer. And so Hoover, who had really wanted just to dump the case back onto local authorities because he didn't think the Bureau could solve it um, because of their ineptitude, suddenly was concerned with this potential scandal um, and was really afraid. It's hard to believe that our most autocratic bureaucrat in history would go on to serve for decades, but he was insecure about his stature at that point, and he, uh, and he was afraid that if the scandal became public, it might cost him his job. So he really, as was often typical of Hoover, was motivated as much by self-interest as anything else to try to at least make some progress on the case. As you write in your book, Hoover had a very specific plan for the Bureau how he planned to conduct things. Uh, He wanted his agents to look like accountants, wanted them to dress the same. (laughs) Um, But he realized early on that sending in these fresh-faced agents might prove to be a detriment to an investigation in Oklahoma. So he started looking locally for men that were comfortable in that type of terrain, that type of environment. But these were men he didn't really approve of either. He hired them out of necessity. Yeah, that's very much true. Um, Hoover was in the process of trying to remake the Bureau um, and um, to professionalize it in many ways. It was, and, um, and he was hiring um, these kind of 
college-educated agents who a lot of the old-timers said, you know, they could type faster than they could shoot, which at that time, you know, really was not completely untrue because many of them really at that time had no experience with criminal investigations and certainly with serial murder. And so he had been purging a lot of the old-timers and including a lot of the frontier lawmen, but he eventually um, brings in uh, a man named Tom White who was in the field office in Texas who was one of these old old frontier lawmen, um, and and he realizes he kind of needs him if he's going to make any progress on this case. And Tom White is an interesting figure because, like Molly, in many ways, he, he kind of straddles two centuries, and this case really traces many of the elements that are happening in terms of the transformation uh, of the United States. So he was born on the frontier in a log cabin in Texas, he was from a family of frontier uh, lawmen. Uh, his father had been a sheriff. His brothers were Texas Rangers. He had been a Texas Ranger. One of his brothers was killed uh, in the line of duty. Uh, and he kind of grew up practicing law at a time when justice was often meted out by the kind of smoking barrel of a gun. And then by the 1920s, when he's kind of called in, in 1925, when he's called into the Osage case, you know, by that time, he's learning to adopt modern techniques like fingerprinting. He has to wear a suit, um, and he has to file paperwork, which he can't stand. He's kind of becoming part of this larger uh, bureaucratic organization. And he realizes, given the, the dangers and threats, because even many of the people who had tried to investigate the case, like I had described earlier, were being killed. There was another person who tried to investigate the murders who was thrown off a speeding train. So uh, basically anyone who got too close uh, was being killed. Uh, so it prompts them to put together this undercover team um, consisting of frontier lawmen. Some of them were they were known as the cowboys with an FBI, and some of them were or had been actually cowboys. Um, really interestingly, he brought into the team um, an American Indian agent by name Wren. And the Bureau didn't keep statistics back then, but I think it's fair to say given Hoover's prejudices, he was the only uh, American Indian uh, operative that was part of uh, the FBI. And they go in undercover, and they, they pose as cattlemen. Uh, one posed as an insurance salesman, and according to the records, actually seems to have sold actual policies. I don't know what happened to those policies, but he seemed to have sold them. And, um, and, and, and they work on the case over a period of time. It's an interesting relationship between Hoover and White. Uh, Hoover infamously ruined the careers of multiple agents who he thought were overshadowing him. Yeah, he he didn't even he hated tall agents. I mean, because he was short and he was insecure about his stature. So he, if you were a tall agent, you hated to be summoned to Washington D.C. And in fact, when White was first summoned to D.C., when Hoover wants to talk to him about the Osage murders uh, and to put him on the case, and at that time White didn't know why. You know, he White stood about six three and probably feared that he was going to get fired <laughs> as he loomed over as he loomed over Hoover. <laughs> so what White found himself having to do is to go back and revisit many of these interviews with witnesses that were done prior to his arrival. Interviews that had been forgotten about or bungled or covered up. What did he do differently this time? What was some of the evidence he was able to successfully collect that had been tossed aside or overlooked by previous investigators? Yeah, so we often think about, when we think about the change and improvements 
in law enforcement over time. We often think of it as kind of, because we're so influenced by CSI, as this kind of gee whiz techniques, that it's these kind of innovations that had the most profound impact on criminal investigations. And it's not to downplay those developments, fingerprinting or DNA, um, but probably the biggest change uh, to law enforcement was simply um, and it's you know and it's always been an ongoing struggle, which is to professionalize it, to keep it disinterested, to pursue the evidence you know without favor, um, to use reason and to not be bought off. And it's easy to underestimate um, how problematic those developments were. That there's always threats and temptations of corruption, of money, poor training, or whatnot. So. In many ways, the, the the development that that White brought to the case was simply kind of pursuing uh, certain leads um, and following them uh, to their end, um, and not you know evident. There's no evidence of you know of him taking a bribe from anybody and just uh, bearing it. So witness testimony that might have in, implicated uh, Triggerman uh, getting outlaws uh, to talk sometimes using undercover informants to get information from people who might have been too afraid to talk. Um, there was also a certain degree of using documents. And in many ways, um, these were inheritance schemes. So in many ways, what he was doing was following the trails of money to see who was profiting, and in particular, who was profiting uh, from the murders of Molly's family members. And it was in many ways following that trail of money that helped them uh, to crack the case. One particularly interesting uh, thread on his investigation had to do with the murder of Henry Rowan. Can you tell us about that murder, what happened to Rowan, the involvement by the Burkhart family, and how White and his group were able to build a case around it? Yeah, so, I mean, Roan was uh, somebody who had been uh, shot, you know, out in a field. Um, and he was, he had been connected to Molly because he had been uh, actually married to her earlier in her life uh, before uh, she later married. Uh, they went their own ways. And then, and then she later married uh, Ernest Burkhardt, this settler from uh, Texas. And um, But uh, White, in that case, was able to get uh, a witness who was able to uh, begin to peel back uh, at least the case involving Molly's family to find some of the direct killers. And and when they followed the money and they were able to get, for example, a witness in the Rome case, they began to realize that the, the trail led them directly to somebody who Molly knew well, somebody who Molly thought she loved and she thought loved her. It led them to her own husband, Ernest Burkhardt, who through each of these murders was, Molly was inheriting the money, but Ernest was controlling it as her guardian. And and what's more, and, and somebody we should probably talk a little bit about, the plan to kill many of Molly's family members had been hatched by uh, Ernest's uncle, a guy named William Hale, who was known as the king of the Osage Hills, who was really the most kind of powerful cattleman, uh, cattle baron in the area. He was also a deputy sheriff. He had always campaigned for what he called God-fearing souls, and it turned out he was, you know, directly implicated in these killings and covering them up. And, you know, one of the things that made these crimes so sinister was 
the way the Osage would get their their oil money was they had what was called a head right. Each person who was on the tribal roll had a head right, which was a share in the, in the mineral trust. And a head right could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. So what was happening is people were marrying into families and and, 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 and then plotting to systematically kill them over time and sometimes their children as well. And so Molly suddenly had to reckon with something that I could never fathom, even after years and years of research, what it must have been like to realize that, that these people to come into her family and come into her life while plotting to kill them. And Hale's involvement with Rowan's murder was motivated by an insurance policy, right? And White's team did some pretty crack detective work to uncover it all. Yes, yes. And and one of the things that Hale did was he, you know, he he presented himself as this kind of friend of the Osage, as he, he used those phrases in one of his letters. And, you know, he really had this simplicity. And so he, you know, he had been a, a, a pallbearer at, at the funeral of, of Molly's sister carrying the casket. And in the case of Henry Roan, they were close. Um, and he had managed to, through kind of swindle um, Henry Roan to, uh, get a life insurance policy on him where he would be the beneficiary. And in just one of his many schemes, and Hale had many of them, he had Roan killed off uh, for his insurance money, his life insurance policy. And White, by looking at all those papers and following evidence, was able to determine the level of forgery and deceit that went into getting that insurance policy. And he used forgery. I, you know, when we talk about techniques, too, there were a lot of forged documents in this case. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. 
Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And now back to the show. Hale was... An incredibly compelling and strange character. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he was, you know, one of these figures out of like Faulkner, you know, kind of peers out of the frontier with like, you know, no history and no recorded past. Um, and in fact, when he arrived in, in, in Osage County, you know, he was just a poor dirt cowboy, you know, kind of with a ragged shirt and apparently carrying a Bible and, you know, kind of transformed himself and then presented himself one way while doing all these other things in the background. But one thing that I think is very important to to talk about so that listeners don't get a wrong impression, which is that the Bureau pursued and White pursued very vigorously the case of Molly's family. Um, but then White left the case for, for various reasons. And Hoover really prematurely closed the case. And so while... A few of the people, like Hale and Ernest, um, were eventually tried um, and convicted, although managed to kind of escape the life sentences they deserved. Um, many of the other killers really went free, and 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 one of the things that you know, in talking to many Osage and getting evidence from them, and then going through archives. Um, you begin to realize that there really was this much deeper and darker conspiracy that the FBI never exposed. And that, you know, while Hill was the central figure, uh, this really wasn't a story about, you know, one evil figure. It was really a story about a culture of killing in which many people participated. And there were many, many murders in families where one person was killed and and people made off with the money they made off with the head right uh and there were you know morticians who would cover up bullet wounds and there were doctors who both in the case of molly's family and others were administering poisons um there were reporters who weren't telling the truth there were lawmen and prosecutors who were on the take 
and there were many others who were complicit in their silence. Do you think most of these men were working for Hale? No, I don't actually. I think that was one of the misconceptions that Hale was certainly committed the most spectacular murders and the most serial murders. To some degree, I bet his activities, and this is speculation, I don't have a document to, 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 to prove it, but I suspect that to some degree, the kind of, his kind of over-the-top brazenness was threatening a system that many were benefiting from quietly. Um, but there were, there were many other murders in many other cases where, you know, Hill was not the direct culprit. He was certainly the mastermind of one of the conspiracies and one of the most sinister and, 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 and the most numerous and with a brazenness that was just over the top where he would kill or attempt to kill witnesses and kidnap witnesses and, um, and, and, and would basically slaughter a whole family and go so far as even to plant a bomb under a house. But there were, there is evidence that shows there were other individual killings in families in which somebody made off with the head right who, um, you know, might have known Hale in the small community but was not being directed by Hale. Was directed by their own motives, and and when people ask, you know, why were the Osage being killed? You know, I always say they're being killed for their money. That was the the motive that was motivating to kill them. They wanted their money, but it was also prejudice, and that these two forces kind of got fused together, in which uh, many of the perpetrators did not see the Osage as these kind of fully bodied individuals with souls and dignity and rights. And it allowed them to justify in their own minds, um, not that they should have, but uh, that somehow um, these were murders. And so I think those two forces came together, which created um, this really just extraordinary, shocking and appalling racial injustice. And it's hard because, you know, so many of the, you know, the suspects are not dead and the witnesses are dead to know the full death toll. But, you know, with the official FBI toll was about 27 Osage who were murdered. Um, you know, most Osage, and I think it's fair to say that the real death toll was in the scores, if not hundreds. The central narrative of your story revolves around Molly Burkhart and her family, the murders of her sisters Rita and Annie and her mother Lizzie, and Hale was responsible for the near elimination of that family. Yes, 100%. Yes. And, and the second part of the you know, the story or another part of the story was also not just who did it, because at a certain point it kind of becomes clear, but a, a, another fundamental question was whether people could be brought to justice based on the frailty of the criminal justice system, the prejudice that existed at the time toward Native Americans. Um, and it was an open question whether a jury in these cases of 12 white men would find one of their own uh, guilty. It's a story not just about figuring out who was behind the crimes, but also could they be brought to justice. One of the more interesting characters uh, in a book full of them was Ernest Burkhart, the man married to Molly and involved in all of this up to his eyeballs. But at the same time, he appeared to have loved his wife uh, on some level anyway, right? to the point that he tried to make amends at the end. Yes. And to me, uh, you know, I think you're right. Out of, out of 
you know, to me, Ernest was in many ways much more interesting than Hale in the sense that Hale, you know, if there had been a diagnosis, I think, you know, had sociopathic elements to him. Uh, Ernest was more typical of many of the perpetrators and is in many ways more frightening in that in many ways he was a more ordinary person with a conscience who still went along with many of these just horrific crimes um, because he was afraid of Hale, because, you know, his his own dubious motivations, and yet was torn because he clearly did have real affection for Molly, and Molly clearly from, you know, letters and oral histories of family had affection for him. And so they had developed an element of relationship. Um, and so he is someone who is, during these crimes or the plotting of these crimes, is someone who is, uh, you see him vacillate between his conscience and between evil. And he struck, you know, as somebody, you know, more in line when we often, you know, think of what I think of as kind of the willing executioners, you know, people, more ordinary people who go along and do evil things. Um, and I think that's often harder and more frightening for us to contemplate because what if that could lurk in the hearts of, you know, seemingly ordinary people could do these things. And then at the end, um, he does ultimately switch sides away from Hale and he does turn and provide evidence uh, for uh, Tom White and in many ways helps save the case at least against Hale um, and help put Hale in jail for at least a period of time. What would happen to Hale? So Hale got a life sentence. One of the, you know, history history to me is always filled with kind of weird coincidences that you, you don't expect and you were know, surprises. I don't know what the right word is. But one of them was that White becomes the warden of Leavenworth. He kind of leaves the FBI and he goes and becomes the warden. And so after several trials where, you know, witnesses and juries have been bought and, you know, hung juries and just just kind of just kind of scandalous behavior and Hale doing everything he could to get rid of witnesses. Um, he does get convicted. He gets um, a life sentence and he gets sent to uh, Leavenworth and, and, uh, and, and White is there to greet him. And there was actually a reporter there who, who documented it. And he serves, if my memory, uh, if my memory doesn't fail me, I think he served about two decades. Um, but he does get out, uh, over White's objections and over the vigorous, vigorous objections of the Osage. Uh, and to this day, many Osage, and, and they're probably right, believe that, you know, Hale was able to kind of pull in his last political connection and favor in order to get released and paroled. Uh, early. And you write that White and his team were privately congratulated by Hoover, but publicly Hoover took all the credit. Yes, and uh, in, in usual Hoover fashion, he did. And um, it was interesting. And, and, and early on, Hoover kind of, he kind of closed the case prematurely and then he tried to use the success of the prosecution of Hale to kind of uh, burnish his own image and buttress the FBI. And it really became kind of an early pivotal case in the, in the making of the Bureau. Um, uh, and I could, the only people I could find who had publicly thanked White in the 
American Indian agent Wren and the other undercover operatives and thanked them by name publicly was the Osage Nation who issued a resolution thanking each of them. Um, but Hoover never did. And, and, and I think you get a sense, you know, part of the things in writing the book was how to kind of, you know, I wanted to look at Hoover during this period which gets less documented in his history. And then, but also to kind of see Hoover in a kind of microscopic way, to see his character through this case. And, you know, his relationship with White, to me, really spoke volumes, which is that, you know, as White gets older, he always still revered Hoover. He revered his time in the Bureau. And once Hoover has kind of gotten from White what he wants, he really doesn't want anything to do with him. Uh, he's eventually persuaded upon White's death, I think, to send a couple of flowers. Um, but that's about it, and he just kind of ignores him. And he also got rid of Wren, um, you know, the operative from the Bureau as well. So he kind of got what he wanted, and and um, and, and, and I, I sometimes think you can learn history, you know, through the particulars of a story that can tell you a larger story. Oh, absolutely. I did an episode on serial killer Carl Panzram a few years ago. Now. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he had a connection to White. Yes, yes, because he was in, and now you're going to test my memory. I'm, I'm already working on my next book, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm immersed in naval history for the last two years. Uh, but going back to my Osage, yes, because Panzeram had been uh, at Leavenworth when, when White was there. Yeah, and I think that you write that White oversaw his execution. He did, yes, he did. And, yeah, and, and White had a lot of interesting intersections because he had been at Leavenworth. Um, and as kind of a postscript to White's life, not only did he have intersections with Panstrom, but he at one point was um, taken hostage in the prison. And um, he was let out of the prison and uh, by a band of outlaws, uh, many of whom were from Oklahoma. And um, he was shot and left to kind of bleed out on the side of the road. And it, you know, he was really close to death. And I found a transcript given by one of the participants, one of the outlaws who had taken, as in their attempt to escape from prison, had taken White hostage. And um, when they were getting closed in on by law enforcement who were surrounding them, several of them killed themselves, not wanting to go back to prison, knowing that if they touched the warden, you know, especially in that day and age, you know, they were going to get beaten and their heads knocked in and uh and and this one of the one of these outlaws who had survived um who had not taken his own life and was taken back to Leavenworth he gave this interview and he he said you know I you know we we would have gotten our heads knocked in but instead we were just put in solitary and he said cuz Tom White when he was in the hospital uh, near death had given the order not to touch him just put him in solitary I don't you basically don't violate the rights don't 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 you know which would have happened in that day and um and white ended up surviving and this outlaw said uh who later went to Alcatraz he said you know there had never been a kind of more decent person than white and and one thing I didn't mention in the in the book which is many years later when white was an old man um this outlaw actually tracked down Tom White and met him and they became friends uh and he described White as the best man he'd ever met. So here was this man who had almost taken the life or was part of a group that had almost taken the life of, of Tom White. 
Um, and there they were as two old men uh, sitting together as friends. And that same gang of outlaws had also taken a young woman hostage, and he had saved her life. Yes, yes. He was a very quietly brave individual. And this, you know, the story, you know, is probably one of the, you know, clearest stories of good and evil I've written about. Um, And there is a great deal of evil, but there is an enormous amount of good, uh, you know, you know, and and great bravery. Um, You know, people like Molly. You know, and again, sometimes I don't say things explicitly in the book. I say them in an interview, but I just try to show this. But, you know, Molly was just, and so many of these associates, but, you know, and I wrote a lot about Molly, was just so brave because, you know, here she was campaigning for justice, hiring private detectives, putting out rewards, demanding justice. She kind of wouldn't just go away, which is what people wanted her to. Um, and, and, and she was really being targeted, and it, it, it nearly cost her her life. I mean, she was nearly killed as a result. Um, and she was, by the end, you know, they were attempting to slowly poison her. And so she just, just kind of, I just found her a remarkable figure. And there are people like Tom White who, you know, he's not Sherlock Holmes. He's not some genius detective. Um, but he has a quiet goodness and determination about him, um, uh, that he demonstrates in this case. You alluded to this already, but a couple of doctors were most likely replacing her insulin with poison. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, that, that to me, uh, you know, again, you know, you shouldn't be shocked about things, but when you're doing research and you start to come across multiple references of, you know, doctors on the scene when the bullet seems to go missing when they're investigating a case and the people doing the autopsy are the same doctors and there's suspicion that people stole the bullet to cover up the crime and then suddenly you see these doctors going into houses, you know, carrying uh, purported medications and the person who they're treating begins to go uh, sick and, and later shown to be being slowly poisoned. Um, and then, you know, even in interviewing um, Osage uh, today, descendants of victims, and um, them speaking about, oh, everybody knew if you went to these doctors, um, you know, that's who you go to, you know, if you wanted to, for poisons and whatnot. And so, again, it just shows the breadth of complicity uh, in so many ways uh, in society. And I think it's important for people you know, to, to, who reckon with the case is to reckon with it. You know, these were seemingly ordinary, prominent people in society. Uh, many of them who were perpetrating these crimes they were doctors and bankers and, and whatnot. Are you willing um, to speculate on this? Her sisters were killed pretty much instantly. One with a bullet, the other with the bomb. Her mother was poisoned pretty rapidly. Why was Molly being killed slowly so it's a good question and you know one of the things that is i'm very careful in when i write the books you know to ground them in evidentiary material that i can find to the point even when i suspected i might have suspected certain people of crimes i would only name them if i thought the evidence rose to a lot they were all deceased so i couldn't be super liable but i would only name them if i thought the evidence crossed the threshold where i would name them if they were alive so i always i felt like because the dead can't speak that's not a reason to 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 libel somebody so 
um, I'm always kind of cautious uh, in trying to show. And I did not have, you know, the question which you asked, I did not have a direct answer from a piece of testimony I could find. But I do think there are there were reasons. Um, I think one of the main reasons was at that time the Bureau had showed up, the, the, the agents had showed up into uh, Osage County and were poking around and investigating. And had they just killed Molly in spectacular fashion or poisoned her quickly, uh, it would have been clear. And so the fact that Molly had diabetes and they could use it as a front to kind of slowly poison her and also to keep her quiet, I mean, that was another element of it as well. So um, I, I think those are fairly informed bits of speculation. Yeah, for sure. So by far the most tragic surviving victim in your story is Molly. Her husband goes to jail. Her entire family is basically slaughtered, well, except for her children. Uh, but what happens to Molly? Was she able to land back on her feet after all of this adversity? Yeah, so, I mean, she was so, um, you know, just even the name mentioned. At first, you know, she could not believe that her husband could have been complicit. She was willing, she believed that Hale could have been, but it took her a while for obvious reasons, just to cross that threshold to realize that, you know, the husband, the the man you married and had children was plotting this. And then, of course, once she realizes that he was, you know, just even the mention of his name would make her sick and and she has no more ever to do with him and she divorces him. And she did um, eventually uh, remarry and I was told by um, descendants that it seemed to be, have been a happy uh, marriage in fact, I even spoke with, after the book came out, a descendant of, of somebody, of the person she had married, and it seemed to have been a loving uh, relationship. Um, and you know, one of the more striking documents I found in trying to tell Molly's story, you know, I was really wanted to, as much as I can, record you know her side of the story based on whatever documents and oral histories I could gather. And you know, one of the striking documents I found was from, I think it was, again, my memory, but it was about 1932 or somewhere around there. It was just a couple of years before Molly died of natural causes. She died fairly young. And um, and it was her appealing to the court, uh, her quote-unquote incompetency, and to get rid of her, the guardianship system in her case. And the court agreed. And it was only uh, then that Molly was granted um, access to what remained of her pilfered fortune. And it was really only then that she was granted the full-fledged rights of an American citizen. In the final chapters of your book, you write about how you researched this and some of the groundwork that you did. Were there any especially gratifying moments, especially interesting interviews that really opened your eyes? Yeah, so I mean, there were really uh, two kind of main avenues of research for the book, and it took about five years to research and to write. And and the two avenues, one was through documents and archival research, uh, trying to find you know any strands, court records, FBI documents, uh, using Freedom of Information Acts to to get hold of 
documents that had previously not been released or get them unredacted, uh, prison records and whatnot. Um, and then the other avenue was um, through tracking down descendants of both the victims of the mur- and the murders, many of whom still live in the same neighborhood to this day. And to me, those interviews were always um, very powerful and revealing and helpful. Uh, and one of the p- people I tracked down was a woman named Margie Burkhart, who is Molly's granddaughter, who's this lovely woman. And we met up by uh, the Osage dances uh, that I had gone up uh, to attend and, and, and to watch. And and we met then, and, and uh, she kind of took me around, and she shared with me what she knew about Molly. She shared with me photographs, and she took me out to the graveyard where so many of her ancestors who were murdered um, and where Molly is also buried. And, uh, you know, was talking to people like Margie that you just realize that this is still living history. You know, sometimes when you're studying history, you know, it can feel removed to the to the in the present day. But you when you talk to someone like Molly and you talk to other descendants, you know, you realize this is living history and we're talking about less than a hundred years ago that these crimes took place. Yeah, that's a pretty special invitation uh, to be able to go to a dance like that. I know that in many Native American communities, celebrations like that are very private and not open to outsiders. Yeah, so, um, you know, those, so Sage, you know, when I started doing the research, I would kind of, you know, um, usually stay for about a month in a, and rented a little room in, um, in Pahaska at a boarding house. And, you know, I would usually go for, um, stay for a month. I would usually do it about twice a year. Um, and I would often, um, you know, go around the time of the dances because so many people would travel from around the country. So it was an easy time to, to kind of meet people who might not even be living in the area. But, you know, many Osage have, over time, you know, you spend so much time doing something and living there. I think at first they were like, who is this, you know, weirdo from, you know, New York who's, I had never been to a prairie before. <laughs> it's a true story. I'd never seen a prairie, which is incredibly beautiful. It's like being in, on, on an ocean, a, a landlocked ocean, but it's just amazing to watch. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, but just over time, you know, Osage would introduce me to other Osage. And, you know, I first met Catherine Redcorn, who I described in the beginning uh, of our conversation at the museum and um, who would, you know, share with me uh, their stories. And, um, you know, I feel incredibly uh, fortunate to have met them and very privileged, you know, to have been able to, um, you know, uh, you know, learn, learn this parts of their history. And the devil in the missing panel, it was, in fact, William Hale. Yeah, so so um, Catherine Redcorn, who was then the museum director, she she actually went down into the basement and she had an image of the missing panel. They didn't put it on the wall, but they had an image of it. She brought it up and she showed me. And there, kind of peering out very creepily uh, from the corner, was was Hale. He's kind of wearing a little chapeau and he had these glasses. He, you know, he he really was. There's something very disturbingly creepy about him. And um and but you know that you know moment always stayed with me because you know I kept thinking you know you know the Catherine and other Osage, you know, they had removed that photograph because they they couldn't forget what had happened. You know, the history was just so painful and so present um, that they had removed it. And yet there were so many people like myself, um, you know, outside the nation um, who just had never learned this history, had not been taught it in school, had not been part of our text and part of our educations. Um, we had, you know, in effect, excised it uh, from our conscience. And 
you know, part of my motivations in trying to tell the story was to hopefully fill in some of that void but and to address my own ignorance. Is there a movie in the works based on the book? Yeah, so um uh they're they have been um they're getting I think closer um to uh to production. Um and uh, Martin Scorsese is supposed to be directing it and uh DiCaprio and De Niro at least have been you know publicly said they are participating. I don't know who else yet will be in the in the cast and who will play Molly. Um and um but they have been um you know, um, you know, speaking with the Osage, um, they had auditions for many Osage to uh, participate, and uh, they seem to, um, you know, be sensitive and to really care about him. You know, one of my hopes is, you know, a book reaches so many people, but a movie can reach either even more. And so, hopefully, um, you know, this story will become part of our national conscience. Oh, do, do you know who is playing who? Uh, is DiCaprio playing Hale or White? Uh, uh, you know, he has not um, announced who he's playing yet, so I don't yet know. Um, and De Niro, I'm pretty sure, is playing Hale, but I don't know if he's publicly announced that, but I'm pretty sure De Niro is playing Hale. Interesting. Uh, didn't uh, uh, DiCaprio play Hoover in a film a few years ago? <laughs> he did, he did, yeah. So I don't know if he's going to play Tom White. I think people assume that, but I'm not sure if he is actually going to play Tom White. Yeah, that, that um, would make I, sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. He Maybe maybe he'll play Ernest, maybe he'll play some. some I don't know who he's going to play yet, but they're getting closer. So I think some of that stuff will become clear, hopefully, in the next, you know, I don't think we're that far away from knowing those answers to those questions. We're probably just a couple months away. Is it going to be just like a one-time, like, feature Length movie or is it a mini series? No, it's a one-time. It's a one-time movie, and they're shooting in Osage County, um, which is great. They're shooting in the areas where you know in the region. So, one more question: Can you talk about what you're working on now? Uh, what what this book is about? Yeah. So, my apologies if my memory uh, <laughs> failed me in, in in our talking about uh, the Osage case because you know you get so immersed in a new project and um, and uh, I've been uh, immersed in, in naval history. But um, I'm always a little bit cryptic on the new thing. But essentially, it is a it's a story about a shipwreck on an island that descends into a real life Lord of the Flies where there are fractured groups and murders and different governments and emissaries going back and forth between the governments. Um, but it's also a, a fundamentally a story about how people tell stories um, in order to shade the truth, uh, in order to, um, out of self-preservation, and then also how nations adopt their own way of telling their stories and their own myths. Um, so I'm working on that. I'm still probably about two years away, but I'm slowly making headway. And if you want to ask me about what life was like on a ship in the 1700s, I will remember that very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, this book is available pretty much everywhere books are sold. And you have a website as well. I do. I need to update it, but I do have a website. Yes. <laughs> David Grand. I think it's davidgrand.com. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, sharing this history with all your listeners. Again, I have been speaking to David Gran. He is 
the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.